How Does That Make You Feel is a podcast that provides helpful tips, tricks, and coping skills for personal mental health wellness. It is not a substitute to your regular mental or medical health practices and providers. If you are listening to this and feel you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to your local emergency room. Please be aware that at two different points in our podcast, we will be doing mindfulness and or meditation-based exercises. Feel free to skip these if you're driving. Hey there, and welcome to How Does That Make You Feel, a podcast brought to you by two therapists and friends who believe that mental health awareness and coping skills are for everyone. Hi, I'm Adriana, a clinical psychologist from the Bay Area working in the substance abuse field with a specialty in working with queer, poly, kink, and alternative sexuality communities. I approach therapy with a feminist narrative lens and believe in the power of the integrative approach. And I'm Jen, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist working in private practice. My background is in the world of substance abuse and the world of intellectual and developmental disabilities. I'm super interested in integrative therapy that brings together the mind, body, and the spirit. I work from a place of body positivity, mindfulness, and creativity. So here we are in our first podcast episode, and then how does that make you feel? So Adriana and I have been talking about doing this for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. And um, we started the idea because we were really interested in making coping skills and mental health and that whole conversation more accessible to everyone, even people who aren't necessarily therapists or don't necessarily even go to therapy yet. And one other thing we have to name is that we are in social distancing period. (laughs) Another reason why it's felt so important for us to provide some form of care, even if in the form of podcast, um, and make sure that people stay connected to their mental health. So Adriana and I are therapists and we worked together um, about six months ago, but we are also really good friends and we really feel that we have something to say and to give to the world of people who care about mental health, which especially in this time of social distancing, I think, you know, we found is getting more and more important to people. People are really noticing that they need to think about what they're, what's going on in their mental health Mm -hmm. and they need to think about Um, how to take care of themselves while things are really, really strange and really, really weird. So the topic today for our first episode is going to be the mental health provider perspective on mental health and therapy. And at the top of every episode before every topic, we're going to do grounding skills. Why are we doing grounding skills? We're doing grounding skills so that as we listen to the podcast, and even as we record the podcast, we can remain completely present. So we're going to take maybe one minute, and what I'd like the listener to do at home or on the bus, wherever you find yourself, (laughs) is finding your body in a comfortable position, allowing your body, your lungs, and your stomach to fill and empty with air. Notice your breath as it enters the body and as it leaves the body. And with your feet planted firmly on the ground, notice what is underneath you and what supports you. 
Maybe a chair is supporting you right now. Maybe it's a bench. Maybe you're standing up and it's just your feet on the ground. Either way, we here at the podcast and we as therapists always like to remind our clients and our friends and our loved ones that being grounded is always important. So after we've gotten this chance to get grounded, I think now we can dig into why we're here, what we're talking about today. Um, from a place of groundedness, we can really start to think about and um, explore ideas without feeling attached to the moment that just happened before. So now we're right here. Yes, hey, we what's up? What's up? So the topic about mental health provider perspective is basically what do we think about therapy as therapists, mm -hmm. therapists thinking about therapy. That's kind of meta now that I say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the idea is how, what do we think about therapy? Why do we do it? Why do we think it's important even for ourselves? Because so I don't know about you, Adriana. Actually, I totally do know about you. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I am in therapy myself. Mm -hmm. And Same. so I think that most therapists really value therapy for themselves too. And what we want to talk about has to do with what the role of therapy is in a someone's life. What is the purpose of that? Why, why should someone think about getting therapy? Mm -hmm. We also are going to ask about what the difference is between a friend and a therapist, why maybe we should uh, not treat a partner or a family member as a therapist. Um, what has the role of therapy been in our lives, which I think we both um, are very interested to talk about. Mm -hmm. What internal and external factors impact how much or how little a client benefits from therapy. And we're also going to talk about what the characteristics are of mental wellness. So I guess I can start us off with this topic. What's the difference between a friend and a therapist? Why should a partner or a friend not be treated as a therapist? Well, um, a lot of people, I think, might wonder, well, in therapy, you're really just quote unquote venting, right? Or maybe you're going there for catharsis. And yes, while that might be true, um, there is something about providing therapy that asks us to act as an objective party and an objective observer. And it's very hard for someone who loves us or maybe someone who doesn't love us very much to be an objective party in a conversation. Jen, what say you? I say yay. <laughs> and I say, because <laughs> I have clients ask me sometimes, um, especially if they haven't been in therapy uh -huh. before. I've, ha I've had people ask me, you know, will you be my friend on Facebook or will you, you know, you know, you know, like as a friend, like, like that kind of question and that kind of discussion starts to come up. And what I kind of explain is, Hey, there is something friendly about being in therapy, yeah. right? Like that you're not, there's, there's connection, there's a relationship there and it feels good. Yeah. And in some ways that can feel like a friend. The biggest difference for me is that I'm in this role here. I'm here for you. You're not here for mm. me. It's not, it's not reciprocal here in that way. Like you're not do you, and, and if the, if we do have an experience where the, that, where we're noticing, Hey, you're starting to maybe be here for me. And that's not what we're doing mm -hmm. here. We kind of try to rewind mm -hmm. and make it so that it's actually like, I, I am here to support you and your goals and what you need. Um, and it's not your job to support me. I've got other people. I've doing got, that my, own I've got my own therapist. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. 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 
Um, and maybe that can kind of bring us into our next topic. Like, so, and just talking about well, what do we experience in our own therapy? Mm-hmm. So for me, I do have a relationship with my therapist that feels friendly in mm. some ways. Yeah. I'd yeah. say um, for me, so I've been in therapy long-term with the same therapist for about just over five years. And we navigated the in-person to the online, to the phone call, to the check-in. We've really done it all. And um, I entered therapy for two reasons. One, because as a therapist, I firmly believe I need a place to put my stuff. Um, And also, I felt that I would have been doing those around me, namely my, my clients, a disservice if while I was going through grief and loss, I hadn't sought out my own care. Yeah, totally. Um, this is going to sound a little blunt, but it is truly how I feel, which is that I don't necessarily trust a therapist that isn't also mm. in therapy themselves. Mm. Um, and I know that that's a kind of a bold thing to say, and 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 there are exceptions for sure, you know. But overall, I think so much comes up just in the process of talking of working with people who have trauma, working who have with people who have their own mm-hmm. stories, but it inevitably brings up your own story mm-hmm. it, it has to it it will so in that you need to be able to have a place to really work through that that's not with the other person because that's not what you're there yeah. for. yeah I also think that um, therapy can be really helpful just in like creating reflection that I can honestly say I do not have other places so like as a therapist, I utilize a lot of um, what we would call motivational interviewing. And uh, interestingly, sometimes when I'm feeling stuck or when I'm really invested in me being angry, my therapist gets really basic to me and is like, so here's what I hear you saying. She reflects it back to me and I sound 10 years old, right? And so, so there's a way in which I think even the basics of objective reflection or looking at how we're using language on the most basic level with an objective party can can be um, really illuminating in ways that other conversations can't. It's true. It's true. Just having a place to kind of put mm-hmm. that and to have it, what what is going on for you mm-hmm. mirrored back to you. I also don't know about you, but when I was in graduate school, we... I I had many professional people in the field, whether they were uh, professors or psychologists themselves, let me know that they felt I would be doing myself a disservice if I was doing this work and not in therapy. I had a few who definitely made that clear. And what I've found is that the people that I think are the most effective, um, like if I'm, the people that inspire me Mm. are people that are getting their own support. Yeah. Like, I don't know anyone who I, I really feel inspired by and supported by that isn't supported by someone totally. else <laughs> in a very, in a very objective totally. way. So you have to be able to have a reciprocal relationship somewhere outside of, of the Absolutely. world. So our next question is, um, what internal and external factors impact how much or little a client benefits from therapy? So I think that, um, I guess I, I, I hope you don't mind me taking the top of the question, but I Get do it. hear when clients come into my office very often, a couple of questions. One, how do I know this is going to work? Two, are you going to fix me? And three, how difficult is it and how long is it going to take? And Mm -hmm. I think my favorite 
kind of answer that I heard so much in graduate school was, well, it depends, right? And I think that fundamentally that's the overall answer to this question. However, there are factors internally and externally that we do see really make a huge impact on our clients. Mm -hmm. I think when I think about this, the idea of, of what internal and external factors help someone do well or not well in therapy. And that's a, that's a whole other kind of concept of what does doing well in therapy. Thank you. Um, (laughs) when I, when I encounter someone who comes into my office and they have already have the ability to think flexibly Mm, and are open to an open to other ideas other than the one that they're like, than the one that they that come they're in invested in to some degree. That that is a factor. If you're someone who tends to have more of a um, an ability to be fluid in your thinking, mm. that means that you're open to a new perspective and therefore might be able to shift something quicker. Um, that doesn't that doesn't say that sometimes you do come in with rigid thinking because there's been something really really um, intense that's happened to you. Our our rigid thinking really usually tends to turn on because we've experienced some sort of threat or some sort of really serious thing in our life. I'm thinking of people that are in grief and that feeling of it was my fault. And sometimes that is where we go to, to kind of make sense of what happened. And that mindset is normal for a little while. But if, if overall someone has the capacity in general to um, shift thinking and be flexible, I find that the people do better. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's less uncomfortable Mm -hmm. for them, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. There's one thing I've really been um, kind of, I guess, marinating on um, lately, which is willingness. And and this kind of piggybacks on what you're saying, but um, I've noticed that the clients who do well, quote unquote, um, aren't necessarily doing anything special, but they're open. They're willing to take direction. They're willing to say, mm, maybe I'm going to someone who knows better because I don't know better. And I also really like thinking about it in terms of what did I need that I didn't get that I could now get from this therapeutic relationship? Maybe that's attachment that in a healthy way, maybe that's an ending that doesn't implode or explode, but really thinking about um, when I come to therapy, am I willing to be open to the entire process? Right. So there's an openness and a willingness to accept in someone else in general um, and what they can, what they might be able to provide that you don't have. In that, it kind of also says that maybe that person has accepted that they don't have every single thing which is a really humble place to be. Like it's a really, it's a going to therapy is a very humbling experience. It really is this idea of like, holy crap, I can't do all of this. And I, and maybe I shouldn't do all of this just without, just by myself. I'm curious. um, So I, when I think about external factors, I find myself having a couple of different responses. One is my kind of like socioeconomic status, um, Mm -hmm. race, gender, ethnicity, access, all of that really comes into play when I think of external factors. Um, But before I jump on a soapbox, I'm curious if there's any um, external factors that really pop out to you. 
Well, I have to say before I answer that question that as you're talking about external features, I'm looking or factors, I'm looking at your little Skype screen and I just see the sunlight just radiating on you. <laughs> you are such a little mermaid in my life. <laughs> so in terms of the external factors that I feel like, uh, you know, the first thing that pops to my mind is people's um, sure. support system. So I, I feel really, really lucky in that I have over time cultivated a pretty good support system, but I won't, I will say that, that hasn't always been true for me. You know, I've really had to learn how to let people and things and mindsets and experiences go that aren't yes. serving me. And so I worked my butt off to have a really good support system. <laughs> I really, I really did a lot of work to come to this place, but I will say that, that in general, having a good support system really helps someone to feel held um, while they're in therapy. So that, like, if let's say something comes up that it's really hard to kind of process and you need some support, your therapist isn't the only Absolutely. one that's there for you. Because realistically, you know, I remember hearing in grad school <laughs> that we were the only profession I don't know how I think about, feel about this now, but we were the only profession that worked on trying to make ourselves not useful anymore. Mm, check that out. Like the, <laughs> yeah, like super, super interesting to think. I don't know that I really see it that way because, you know, and some therapists do though. Some therapists come from a, from a perspective of, Hey, we're here to help you get through a certain, uh, certain issue. And then, yeah. And then we're done. Like they they really want to like resolve a certain issue. I'm not, I'm not particularly that kind of therapist, but I think there's yeah. a role for that. However, what I'll say is I am, I'm kind of of the mindset that I can always use mm-hmm. support. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I, if I also don't have a place, a, a place uh, to put things outside of my therapist, the, the week, the week in between my appointments is going to be really, totally, really hard totally. for me. Um, when I think of external factors, and I promise I will not jump on a soapbox here, but there's a couple of things that come to mind. And I think they come to mind, one, because of my personal experience, and two, because of having worked in very um, resource depleted nonprofits. So like, I think of bus fare. Mm-hmm. I think of, can you walk outside mm-hmm. of your house um, and safely get to your car or safely get to bus stop? Um, do you have a house? Do you have a place where you can safely um, have therapy, have a phone call, um, write in a journal, cope? I think about access right. to care in your language, in your native tongue, so that you can actually have a um, therapeutic relationship that is fully understood and where you get your needs met. So, um, for sure, you know, there's all of these ways in which I think fundamentally access and resource are huge in external factors. That leads me to thinking about something else related to um, access. And I love that idea, but also what are the things that maybe you have come to believe mm-hmm. about therapy and about mental health because of, because totally. of the environment that you're from? So I, I'm lucky in that I've come from an environment for the most part where it like we all knew in my family that we were anxious. So like anxiety wasn't hard to talk about, but some people, you know, um, however, you know, you had to do something about it. You had to keep moving forward. Like it was just, there's every, every fam. 
yeah, every family has their own kind of value set about how they approach mental health. And I think there are also some communities, and I've talked about this directly with my, with many clients is it's not okay to say that you are suffering. It's not okay to say that you um, have anxiety. That's not even a word that maybe is in, okay. is in the cultural vocabulary. So I feel like it can be really, and this kind of comes back to that concept we've all heard mm, about, the stigma yeah. of therapy. And that's a very, very culturally charged thing. Um, while there is a big picture stigma of, of what mental health, mental health means to the world, there's a smaller one of what it means to the United States. There's a smaller one mm-hmm. of what it means to your specific mm-hmm. community that you're in. I think for, in my life circumstance, um, I was fortunate because I was blessed with an abundance of love. Um, I was not blessed with an abundance of resource. However, I had family who was willing to name when something was not right. Um, and I had family that I could name that I did not feel okay. And they, you know, quickly would help with little resource. So I grew up, you know, going to the Tom Waddell clinic in San Francisco or um, trying to get into sliding scale therapy. And I really think that having had the experience about lack of resource really makes me step back. And even from a clinical standpoint, I also try to investigate what means could help the client engage in therapy in a different or more positive way. For sure. (laughs) You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, I, you were trying to get into sliding scale therapy when you were younger. And I was that kid who like Mm. refused to go to therapy. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't get out of the car. (laughs) No, I'm serious. The first time I went to therapy, my mom couldn't get me out of the car. The therapist had to come down to this car, (laughs) but now, but as an adult, I see it very differently. And I, um, I think, Hey, if we're talking about factors that really have a lot to do with how how you will experience therapy, your interest yeah. in doing it has a lot to do with that too. What are the circumstance? What are the circumstances around which you are having to pursue therapy? I, my experience is that people who've come from maybe ha- having mm. to do it because they're court ordered, or having to do it because um, they've been inter- they're in crisis down. and they're about to lose. I was, I was yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like their family has said, like you need to do something. And that definitely colors the way it feels totally. to go into the treatment room. So our, our next kind of question that, that we thought would be helpful to answer in this first episode is, um, what are the characteristics of mental wellness? Now, it was interesting because we were, when we were considering even asking this question, our first kind of sentence that we wrote was about mental illness versus wellness. And we thought, you know, there are so many ways in which the idea or the language of mental illness is stigmatized. Why not change it into a discussion about wellness rather than chronic illness? Yeah, I see them in some ways. I The word illness came to my mind because I see it as opposites. I see that there are things that you can do to be in mental wellness because and and things that you can do to be in mental illness and and just like you can um, be in physical health versus physical illness and there are choices that you can make and some choices that yeah. aren't made that are made for you <laughs> about what will impact that. So when I said mental illness, I'm really thinking of it as the opposite mm. of mental health. 
um, mm-hmm. a mental wellness, I should say. And, you know, one thing that actually brings up too is, is, is a topic that what, what is mental health when it relates to physical health? And I think this goes right, right into where we're going with, um, what is mental wellness in general? So what do you think mental wellness's role is in health overall? Well, um, I think that it is a symbiotic and orbiting relationship, um, meaning that one cannot exist without the other and one absolutely impacts the other. And I think that it probably goes both ways, though, because I'm not a scientist. I don't want to say that. But, you know, if you look at research overall, we see that the way that we use perspective, for example, whether we have a positive perspective or maybe a more negative perspective, we notice that impact neurotransmitters, it creates cortisol, you know, it can high, um, create higher rates of not so great LDL cholesterol. I mean, there's all these ways in which the way that we see the world and the way that we are impacted by the world absolutely um, impacts our physiology. And the reason that we do grounding at the beginning of these, of these podcasts, and we're going to do it every single time is partly for this reason. You know, it's really about how can we get ourselves into a, a, a mindset of being able to be open as opposed to being closed. And that comes, starts from being, feeling safe really, and really getting grounded and feeling that your environment around you is stable. So, you know, it's not always possible to get rid of everything that's going to be getting in your way. So there are certain choices that you can make. And I think one of them is just to kind of recognize what you do have. When I think of someone who's in mental wellness, I think of someone who can really who takes time for themselves so that there's space for their needs, if that makes sense. Um, It's not easy to take care of your needs. (laughs) It takes a lot of intention. It takes a lot of practice. But if you don't do that, your body senses that you're unsafe. Mm -hmm. Your body senses that it's not being taken care of and it starts to have feelings about that because feelings are information. And I, if I like, I need to make that into a jingle. Feelings are information. Like it's it's probably the most the most imp- common thing I talk about. If you don't see feelings as information, it can be really hard for you because you're trying to get rid mm-hmm. of them. And so kind of segueing into two of the ways that we've thought about um, conceptualizing mental wellness, the first being flexible and more dialectical thinking versus rigid black and white thinking. And at least uh, for me, and I'm sure you know this, Jen, too, one of the ways where I see this show up um, and one of the ways that it integrates the physiological with the psychological as it relates to wellness is substance abuse. And working in substance abuse, so much of what I'm educating people about is that when we are attempting to protect ourselves, i.e. when we become hypervigilant, we let go of the ability to reason and plan, and we hyper-engage in the rigid and the black and white. There is no gray. It is only survival or death, right? Survival or annihilation. And for those reasons, we really function from a place of both scarcity and hypervigilance. So that's one of the things. If, if, 
for example, um, we're seeing clients and we're noticing rigidity, for me, that signals, oh, maybe there's something that doesn't feel safe. If we have to back into a place of rigidity um, and staunch opinion to a degree that it, it becomes disconnecting, that tells me someone is feeling like they need to defend themselves um, or stay safe. Yeah, coming from the world of developmental disabilities, I, this is the part for me that's that, that when I'm working with with clients and staff who have to live basically together and the clients are really struggling um, to communicate, literally verbally, not being able to say what they need, we commun they show it very specifically through their how they behave. Every behavior is a communication of a legitimate need. That's, I think, what I took a lot from working with people with disabilities who necessarily couldn't even say what it is that they were needing in that moment, so they would show mm -hmm. it. Um, and that would be a indication, okay, I, I, I have a need for safety, I have a need for um, food. I have a need for this. I have a need for that. Um, and our feelings come from when our needs are not being satisfied in some way. Um, or we perceive that our feelings are not, or our needs are not getting met in some way. We are really programmed from a survival standpoint to get what we need and to feel uncomfortable when we're not getting what we mm -hmm. need. And so what we can take from that is those are the things that maybe we see when struggling, someone is struggling with their wellness. And when we see someone who is experiencing mental wellness, we see cognitive and psychological flexibility, and we see the ability to engage in dialectical thinking. So what does that mean? Well, dialectical thinking comes from what we would call dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT, Marsha Linehan. And what it means is that we are able to hold the experience of more than one position. So for example, I can be angry that my cat um, peed in my shower this morning, which happened, <laughs> or yeah, I if I, I could just be angry <laughs> and screaming at the cat, or I could understand that maybe that was the best place for it to go and maybe it also couldn't reach the, the cat litter in time and didn't want to pee on the floor. So I could choose to be rigid in my thinking and be angry that the cat peed in the wrong spot. Or I could engage in more flexible thinking and see that, in fact, the cat was doing the best thing it could at that time. And even further than that, I think holding that, yeah, and then holding on to the fact that you can be angry about it and be in acceptance Absolutely. about it at the same time. And that we can have anger and not necessarily respond to it. The word, Marsha Lanahan was really um, famous for using the words, yes, and you know, that trying to realize that even though you, maybe you're angry at your cat, you can also be in acceptance of why your cat did that yes. thing. Um, and oftentimes holding both things at the same time is can soothe someone through that Absolutely. process. So I, I think about that related to like, for example, this whole this global crisis right now, I can feel scared and I can feel hopeful that um, maybe we can get out of this and maybe we can f come together as a community about that. I can have both uncomfortable things going on inside of me and comfortable things going on mm -hmm. inside of me. And what we notice is that when we're able to do this, what does it create? Well, it creates compassion. 
it also creates empathy. And so we notice that the people, for example, who are most stuck in their desire to be angry or in anger feeling safest for them, those people also struggle with compassion towards others and fundamentally compassion towards self. Whereas people who are able to be a little bit more flexible, granted, it doesn't have to be huge. It can just be like Jen said, being able to hold that two things can be true at the same time. We see that those people are able to maybe pat themselves and others on the back a little bit more and also able to see that often we are, for the most part, doing the best that we can. And when we apply that to our behavior, it allows us to feel less guilt and shame. You know, Adriana and I both coming from the world of substance abuse and recovery and like also kind of a 12 step mentality, at least it being part of our world, we definitely have, it was, it is something that we think about a lot. There's this idea that we can be in a situation that we absolutely cannot stand and also take action towards making it something that's a little mm-hmm. more tolerable. As opposed to, I think that the opposite of that being, I can't handle this. I This is too much for me. I'm going to go numb out. I'm going to go numb out with drugs, food, video games, whatever it is. That, yeah, you name it. Um, anything can really, and sometimes for some people that is anger, you know, there's this feeling Mm -hmm. of I'm going to numb out by expressing this in a way that hurts other people. All of those things are ultimately not helpful to us if we really take a second and and pause. And that's why taking a second and pausing is the first step we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do it a lot. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Otherwise we're, we're reacting from fear versus flexibility. Mm-hmm. And that also kind of brings us to our second um, characteristic that we think, and, and again, this list is not exhaustive, but it's the things that kind of we see in patterns or in themes across our work. And the second characteristic of mental wellness is self-care and self-action versus self-pity or self-stagnation. And the reason that this is an example of mental wellness, and I want to be clear that self-care does not have to be sensationalized self-care, right? Like I'm not saying get 12 bath bombs, get in a huge bubble bath and drink champagne. I'm saying- I mean, sometimes we're saying do that, but- (laughs) There are ways in which I think that doing self-care in a quote unquote routine way can really help us integrate self-care and integrate taking care of the self in a more kind of approachable way. Yeah, for sure. I know pretty, pretty quickly what, how I will start to feel when I'm not taking care of myself. And this is not a black and white thing. Again, like sometimes there are going to be days where it it is easier to take care of yourself than others. And some days, um, self-care is actually something that might feel really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that <laughs> sometimes I love the way thing you just said about the bath bombs, because it's really true. I think that there's this idea of self-care being like, I have a, I have a mud mask on my face and a bottle, like, you know, and I'm in a bubble bath. And yeah. I think, but sometimes it's really like, I need to do my dishes. I need to wash my laundry. I need to make sure I've brushed my teeth today, especially like right now. It can be so easy, easy to kind of fall out of taking care of our bodies. Absolutely. Um, when ultimately this all comes back to what we feel in our body, because if we're not taking care of ourselves, we're, our, our anxiety is going to be held in uncomfortable places. We are going to react as if we're not safe because we're not treating ourselves 
mm-hmm. as if we're safe. Which creates what? It creates rigidity. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so the next topic that we have, um, and we will have this included in every episode, is just a little piece of psychoeducation. And um, in these following minutes of psychoeducation, we're going to talk a little bit about the benefits of talking to an objective party, which I really think we kind of covered in the top. Um, We're also going to talk about the research that implicates the benefits of medication and therapy together versus one or the other. And we're also going to talk about the benefits of expressing emotion and mindfulness. Well, so I think we kind of covered talking to an objective party. But again, just to restate, um, it's really beneficial to get reflection and observation and perspective from someone who just isn't in your world. Um, And a great way to do that is from a professional. And one of the reasons we want it from a professional and not just someone who who you don't know very well is because we want to make sure that values, HIPAA, so confidentiality and uh, boundaries are all intact. And those are things you find from a licensed professional. And those are things that you need in that relationship because they make you feel safe. Yeah. Like I just, I want to want to bring it all back around and remind everyone that it all comes back to emotional, physical um, and spiritual safety. Absolutely. So um Really quickly, the research on the benefits of medication and therapy together versus one or the other, those have been actually, those theories have been um, hypothesized and tested since the 1970s, beginning specifically in looking at CBT and its effectiveness with or without medication and vice versa. So medication with or without cognitive behavioral therapy treatment. And what they found and what they've continued to find since the 1970s in many articles is that fundamentally therapy and medication create the best objective, particularly in a short-term acute setting. Now, for the long term, I think, especially after maybe a major event, major life event, some big change in life, or a crisis that's caused you to come into treatment, if you need a medication and you are comfortable taking it, and it's something that's aligned with what you would like your care plan to be, we see that once a week therapy and medications often create a positive result in therapy. And I think that has to do with the fact that over time, if you've been in situations where it really depleted your serotonin, where you have been not able to produce as much of that, you know, um, quote unquote, happy hormone, that we need to feel stable, that uh, medication really helps to re- to stabilize those levels again so that you can function from a place of, of a little bit more evenness and that if something is being processed, that you have some ability to handle mm-hmm. that w- without, you, you know, without having been in treatment for a long time yet. Because sometimes we really need to have some biological support Absolutely. As well. I also just want to touch on the benefits of the reasoning behind we why we would do medication and therapy. So sometimes, and this can be either a familial, an internal, or a cultural narrative, sometimes there's a belief of, oh, just go take your quote unquote, you can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes, quote unquote, happy pill, right? Go take your pill and go fix it. And I think everybody mm-hmm. has their different value set about this, but because I grew up in a home that had... Um, 
a high amount of substance abuse. I am a person who's actually medication averse. And so for me, I really needed to learn about why the two of them went together. I needed to learn about why when I was in a period of grief, um, you know, my therapist asked about antidepressants. And so it was really important for me to understand that in a period of grief, sadness, anxiety, there was no magic pill to make it go away. And that I also Mm -hmm. needed to figure out my own relationship to medication. And partially I did that Mm -hmm. in my individual therapy. But I will say that for so many families, the idea of being on medication is one of two things. And often they're kind of opposing. One, it's stigmatized that you're taking any kind of mental health medication. Or it's go take the pill, but you don't need therapy because the pill should fix it. And I think both of those narratives can get kind of tricky. Yeah. And and that also made me think of that if you're if you're taking pills um, and in therapy and if you're not improving fast enough. I know that that sounds kind of strange that, um, that you're, you're not, you're not good. You're, you're Mm -hmm. bad that this should really be fixed sooner and get it done. And I think that ultimately that doesn't allow someone the time they need to really become stable. Getting stable is a skill. Yes. Getting stable is a skill. And if you have never used it, therapy and medication are, will help you likely, but they might not. You may really need to implement some new behavior. So if you don't have that in your repertoire at all, it's all three of those things. Mm-hmm. You really need the support behaviorally, you need the support biologically, and you need the support uh, relationally. Yes. Um, and I could probably keep going on all the ways that we need support, but um, I'll leave it at that for now. I feel like that encapsulates where we really need to feel held as humans. Mm -hmm. So um, research on the benefits of expressing emotion. Now, not to like, not to continually bring it back to substance use. However, when I've worked in the substance use field and specifically the um, severe trauma field, i.e. gender-based persecution, um, refugee status, domestic violence, I notice that there is a prejudice against emotion and it's because the Mm -hmm. expression of emotion does not feel safe. Mm -hmm. Whether that's something we learn in the moment with a partner when we're experiencing intimate partner violence, whether that's something we learned from dad or whether that's something we've learned culturally, I do notice a huge prejudice in the expression of emotion. And um, I have found at least in working with individuals and groups that naming that there is the prejudice, providing things, uh, resources such as a emotions wheel so people can understand what that is, and being able to talk about emotion without guilt have been hugely impactful. And actually, for me, this comes back to rigid thinking versus flexible thinking. And, you know, you can't necessarily control the ways that you were taught, uh, um, what you were taught about emotions as you were growing up but you can be open and flexible to thinking about it in a new way. So something I hear a lot from people is that anger and sadness and grief and are bad. The yes. word's bad. Yes. And and that feeling happy, feeling grateful good is good. Mm-hmm. You know, that there are there are good emotions and then there are bad emotions. And I think a lot of people will really resonate with this because I hear it more often than not actually. And I really have to come from a place that doesn't see emotions as 
having having a goodness or a badness that it's really about is it comfortable or uncomfortable to you and what purpose is it serving Mm -hmm. is it that there's a threat or something that you think is a threat and therefore feeling scared makes sense and it's useful and if there's sadness maybe you've lost something Mm -hmm. so emotions not being necessarily good or bad but just simply comfortable or uncomfortable and if we see it that way we can allow our emotions to have a purpose in our life Absolutely. as opposed to something that we be that we try to push away or exhume from our existence which uh, uh, spoiler alert it's not going to work no it's not the other thing i will say about this bad versus good emotion thing is that One of the great things about using an emotions wheel, and folks, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go into Google, Google emotions wheel, PDF, you will find it. One of the great things about using this type of resource is that it's helped my clients go from, ooh, I'm I'm having bad emotions to, oh, I'm in the fear quadrant, or oh, I'm in the happy quadrant. It's, it's totally um, redefined for people the way that they're categorizing their emotions. And it's also decreased the shame, guilt, and stigma around those emotions. Yeah. I, was, I made this like really, this moment I had a couple of days ago that I was really proud of where I was like, you know, the word should <laughs> is just like could plus shame. Mm. And it, oh, and I was like, it is though. <laughs> Every time we say, well, I should be doing push-ups right now, or I should be exercising right now, it's, what if you replaced it with could? I could be doing this. If only we just didn't have to put shame on everything. It's like our spice of life, especially in the U.S. We just like to just pour it on everything. Yes. Including our feelings. We really like to make our feelings shameful. Absolutely. So lastly, we kind of briefly wanted to touch on the benefits of mindfulness and meditation on the central nervous system. This is another one of my little soapboxes here. My clients hear it all the time. But what research has found is that as little as five minutes and as much as one hour of meditation a week positively impacts the central nervous system and decreases hypervigilant central nervous system behavior. So I'll, I'll say that one more time, getting grounded, getting mindful and using meditation as a coping skill positively impacts a heightened central nervous system. For sure. That's ultimately, again, why we do that at the beginning and end of our podcast. The last thing we really wanted to talk about together is what are some skills and coping mechanisms that we can use that can be helpful to us um, as we start to learn more about our, our internal world. Mm-hmm. And so some of those things are basic resources like hopping online and going to NAMI. Uh, the National Association for Mental Illness. And it really helps people who maybe are curious about knowing a little bit more about what mental health is, mm-hmm. as well as connecting with other people who are experiencing similar issues. So they really have a lot of good events and community resources for people who have who are needing to support with their mental Absolutely. health. Absolutely. Um, the other thing that we thought would be helpful resources are meditation and mindfulness resources, apps like Insight Timer 
apps like Calm. Um, and these are things you can put on your phone. The great thing about Insight Timer is that you can do meditations as short as one minute, as long as 20, and you can pick whichever voice you like, which is super important to me. Um, another thing that you can do is Google coping skills apps. I think that it's really important that mm-hmm. even if it's a gratitude list that's three sentences once a day, even if it's using an app to check in with a loved one, seeing if we can use our resources on a daily basis so that self-care becomes routine. I'm a big fan of another app called Stop, Breathe, and Think, mm. where at the beginning of of a session, you actually rec- track what, what your feelings are. Then you can engage in some sort of uh, activity that's related to however you're feeling. So for example, if you're feeling timid, they might have you, they might have you do a lion's mind type Mm. of meditation to get, to get into your power. And then you also get to track your feelings at the end of your meditation. So, so that can kind of, I'm, I'm a, I'm a nerd, so I really get it. I can really get into tracking what happened, what are my feelings each day? What are, what it really, where does that come from in my day? And what is the impact of actually using my, my coping skills? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think it's really interesting to take data at the beginning. So what are my feelings at the beginning? And what are my feelings at the end? So I can really recognize, oh my goodness, this actually did have an impact on me in some way. Mm-hmm. Or it didn't, and I need to, I need to adjust something. Mm-hmm. I also think in general, um, particularly in a time of social distancing, it can be great to hop online and see if there's any um, support groups, any Zoom meetings, for example, you can join and really just get as connected to community as possible, particularly in a time where so many feel so many people feel so isolated. You know, Adriana and I, I know that we, we've talked been talking about substance abuse a lot in here, and I want to say something really quickly about why I do think of everything through that lens, even when people are not necessarily suffering from substance abuse. I think there's a way in which we can really get stuck into a certain pattern and just like we can get stuck into an addictive pattern. And the way that we pull that ourselves out of that is by using different skills mm-hmm. that, you know, because ultimately substance abuse is, is simply using a skill that's not helpful yeah. <laughs> and, and really harmful to you. So I don't necessarily, it, coping skills can, can be whatever you want them to be mm-hmm. as all, as long as they are not harmful to you or harmful to someone else. Mm-hmm. So my coping skills of choice are usually something involving my body. So, cause I, I need to constantly, for me, it's a goal to really integrate that more in my life. So it's going to be something like a walk or yoga. Mm-hmm. So something that gets you connected to your body as opposed to completely disconnected and, un- and ungrounded. Right. So those are my coping skills of choice. Whereas my coping skills might be hiking, um, doing something outdoorsy that kind of feels like it's kicking my ass or doing something that's faith-based or spiritual. And I find particularly with being someone who's a practicing Jew, engaging specifically in ritual really helps me feel grounded to myself, but also the just the people and the places that were before me, it helps me feel a little bit smaller and less important sometimes, which I think is needed for me at least. No, I think 
feeling, feeling a little smaller makes you more connected to the bigger picture. Absolutely. You know, so I think there is a place for getting humble and getting real and realizing that you're connected to a whole bunch of other people. And that kind of leads us actually into some of our last little sections here. In our next segment, which you will notice at the tail end of every episode, we have Raphael's Unconventional Coping Skill of the Week. And Raphael is a UX and product designer living in the Bay Area who's also an artist and who's going to be filling us in with cool coping skills each week. Here's Raph. Hey, Raph. So this week's Unconventional Coping Skill is going to be a little bit of like a drawing challenge. You can like have one today or continue it for like 30 days. But basically, you can draw just a doodle, draw your favorite place, favorite memory, something new, or you can just draw something that you just process in therapy. Because when I was doing EMDR, I had this imagery of a beach with words coming out based on like what I was talking about in therapy. And after that, I drew it that afternoon and it was easier for me to process. It was almost like subconscious. I don't really know. I'm not a therapist, so (laughs) help me out there. But no, it definitely helped me process the things that like I didn't realize were a part of what I was dealing with. So yeah, draw it out, y'all. <laughs> draw it out, y'all. Um, Hashtag draw it out. I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Levine over here. Right. Cool. Thank you so much, Raf, for You're that welcome. really cool way of integrating art into coping skills. Woot woot. I'm all about how do we bring our whole self into our coping skills. Absolutely. All the things that make us us. Integrate yourself. (laughs) So for our closing, maybe next 10 minutes, what we're going to do is help you um, in the same way that you were grounded to our place and time in this podcast. We're going to help you get re-grounded, leave the podcast, and go out to the rest of your day. And we're going to do this with a beginner's mindset meditation narrated by Jen. Thanks, Adriana. Please start by getting into whatever position allows you to feel fully mindful and present. So, For me, that's always my feet flat on the ground. In fact, take a second and put your feet flat on the ground wherever you are. You can readjust later. Notice where you feel connected to the earth. And if it's comfortable for you at this point, go ahead and close your eyes. If closing your eyes isn't available to you, you can always take a gaze down past your nose Start by taking a couple of deep breaths with your feet flat on the ground. Imagine beneath you, there is a vast supportive earth because there is. Picture the full earth beneath you and roots growing out from your feet connecting you to that vast supportive earth. Allow that earth to support you. Allow it to connect you to every other person who's experiencing this moment with us. So 
In this meditation, we're going to be talking about what is the beginner's mind. So I want to start by reading a quote from Zen Buddhist monk Shinryu Suzuki. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything. It is open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So if we invite in the idea that this moment is brand new, we can open ourselves up to new perspectives. We can find newness and opportunity in every moment of our lives. And when there's newness and opportunity in every moment of our lives, that can reduce depression. It can reduce anxiety. It puts you in a world of possibilities. So set your intention to receive openly and freely as if you are experiencing this moment in your body for the first time, because in some ways you are this moment you've never experienced before. So as you're sitting in your body, Imagine that you've bit, you're in it for the very first time, feeling the blood flow through your veins, feeling your breath expanding in your lungs. Notice what it's like. Imagine this was the first breath you ever took. If your mind wanders, that's okay. You can allow that too. Maybe even imagining that it's your mind wandering for the first time. This is the first time you've ever done this. What this does is it allows us to be open and spacious and curious and vibrate to the ideas and possibilities around us. Notice how each part of your body reacts to your breath. Notice how your mind and your spirit react to conscious breath. Take a moment to appreciate the fact that this moment is the only moment that truly exists. This is the one we're experiencing. Allow the fullness of this moment to allow you to be curious, open to every thought, sensation, and feeling. As if it's you're a child experiencing the playground for the first time. Let the magic of this moment fill you. Now that you've captured the moment of now and enjoyed it, starting to appreciate it, honor it, reconnect to those roots beneath your feet. 
reconnect to every single other person and living being experiencing this moment with you in whatever way they are experiencing their moment. In this way, you can be connected to the fact that every single moment is different and therefore new. And if every moment is new, we can find something different in each moment. Take a moment here at the end to lean into what a beginner's mind means to you, what it means to you to approach things with newness and freshness. How might that serve you in the rest of your life and going forward in your day? And take a breath to seal your meditation practice. Exhaling, beginning to reconnect to the feeling of your body on the chair, wiggling your fingers and toes to wake on up. When you're ready, you can open your eyes and rejoin us. That was wonderful, Jen. Thank you. <laughs> you know, Jen and I were kind of both joking that when we run therapy so. groups, we've been told a number of times that we should, you know, either write or record our own meditations because we're so soothing. And Jen, I fundamentally agree. Oh, thanks. I, I found you all soothing as well, my dear. <laughs> Well, so I think that that wraps us up for today. And I want to say thank you so much to everyone who joined us today for our first podcast. It's pretty exciting. I can't believe we're about to wrap up our very first podcast. Yes. Oh my God. It's crazy bananas. Thank you so much. And I think this is an important conversation. I'm so glad that you guys all joined us to be a part of it. And it's a conversation we hope to continue to have. Thank you for joining us in thinking about mental health. It's been real, friends.